Uh, we're going to try to see if we can today to get into t- up to 25 in verse 4. It's a big ambition, but we will see how we can do. But in 23, verses 21 through 23, there is a statement about vows. The Bible says, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. When you make a vow, pay it. And don't delay. Don't delay. It's no sin, according to verse 22, not to vow. If you refrain from vowing, that's not sin. But if you make a vow and you're not faithful in keeping the vow, or you delay in keeping the vow, then that is wrong. You'll be careful to perform what comes out of your mouth. But in Ecclesiastes, you see the same kind of idea. Ecclesiastes 5, in verse 4. The Bible says, Ecclesiastes 5, in verse 4, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Again, it's not a sin not to vow. But if you make one, you must be careful to fulfill it. Jacob made a vow, Genesis 28, verses 20 through 22. He was slow in fulfilling it. God pushes him to fulfill that vow uh, in Genesis chapter 35. But in verses 24 and 25, Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes until you are fully satisfied. But you shall not put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck heads with your hand. But you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. You enter your neighbor's vineyards, you can eat his grapes, you can eat his grapes, or uh, you can pick a head of grain. I know when... Uh, I was raised, uh, the man that lived next to my uh, grandmother had uh, a grapevine and a vineyard. And, and I practiced I, I would just go and, and I would eat a few, but would not harvest them, would not take them with me. Um, and there, you can eat and satisfy your hunger, but you're not to sit there and just have a basket and collect as many as you want to go home. Now, where does that come into play in the big picture of the Bible? Where does that passage come to play? (laughs) 
the disciples are going through the fields. Um, Deuteronomy 23. This comes into play in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8, Mark 2, 23 through 28, Luke 6, 1 through 5. It's all the same account. The disciples are going through the grain fields and they pluck the heads of grain. When they pluck the heads of grain, they are not accused of stealing. They are criticized because they did this on the Sabbath day. The reason they weren't accused of stealing is because of this passage. This passage shows they were allowed to do that. That was not the question. The question was whether or not they should pluck these heads of grain on the Sabbath. Okay, let's look at Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who took her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Since she has been defiled... For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, what is this passage trying to accomplish? Let me go back and briefly uh, state a couple of things that, that we have dealt with before in various laws, but... But it really applies here. There are different kinds of laws God gave to Israel. Um, there is the apodictic law. Now you don't have to remember the words, but I would encourage you to remember the idea. Apodictic is simply laws that said, you shall or you shall not. The Ten Commandments fall into that category. In Exodus 20, you shall not have any other gods before you. That is the Ten Commandments, but in the Old Testament bigger scheme of law, that is the exception rather than the rule. The rule is that the laws are casuistic. And I make no guarantees, by the way, about spelling. Casuistic, and what I mean by that is that it is if-then law. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, 
is not a you shall, you shall not law. It is a casuistic law that gives the first three verses give the if. The then is given in verse 4. And really, each of the verses from 1 to 3 introduce a new condition, a new situation into this scenario. It is not right to say this passage is a passage promoting divorce or uh, encouraging divorce or giving the reason for divorce in the Old Testament. It's not doing any of those. It is simply taking divorce as if it already existed and it is putting some kind of regulations on the practice. In verse 1, and like I said, each of verses 1 through 4 gives some kind of different condition. Or verses 1 through 3 give some kind of condition. In verse 1, a man takes a wife and marries her. She finds no unfavor. She finds no favor in his eyes because of some uncleanness. What, what, what is the reason she finds no favor in his eyes? What is the cause of uncleanness? It's not specified in the text. It's not specified because that is not the focal point of the text. Now later, Jewish rabbis argue about this. Some argue that he could only divorce his wife for adultery. Others argue that no, you could divorce your wife for any kind of grievance. Even if she burned the bread in the morning. That was a real debate that took place among the Jewish rabbis in the time of Jesus. This doesn't specify. It just says, she finds no favor in his eyes. What he has to do, he has to write her a certificate of divorce and give it to her. He writes a certificate, hands it to her. Then, step two is verse two. In verse two, she leaves his house and she becomes another man's wife. So he has divorced her and she has gone out and become another man's wife. It doesn't say that's a good thing. doesn't say that's a bad thing. It just says this is the situation. The third situation is in verse 3. The second husband either writes her a bill of divorcement and sends her away, or he dies. So three situations described in the first three verses. And then the conclusion is made in verse 4. Her former husband, who sent her away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that would be an abomination before the Lord and bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Why is, why is this considered an abomination? Why is this considered defiling to the land. I'm not exactly sure. 
you see some different ideas proposed, but most writers who comment on these passages give several suggestions because they don't know. And they're not for sure either. The Jewish people in the days of Jesus asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And Jesus said, have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and will no longer be two but one flesh. And what God has joined together, man is not to separate. And they said, Moses commanded us to give a writing of divorcement. To them, that was the emphasis of the passage. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to do this. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for fornication has committed adultery and causes her to commit adultery. That is Jesus' statement when the Jews bring up this kind of scenario. I am not saying that situation is exactly what Deuteronomy 24 says. Deuteronomy 24 shows, Jesus shows Deuteronomy 24 was a concession to man's hardness of heart. In light of man's sin and man's wickedness, this regulation is given to limit or curtail wickedness to some degree. Yes, Bob? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I just, I'm not sure. I, in the bigger picture of all the Bible, are you right? Yes. In this specific passage, I don't know. And I, I don't know, but, but you know, I, I'm, I'm glad you said it, and I want you to think, and you all think about that. I'm not, I don't know whether that's right or wrong. I, I understand what you're saying, Bob. I, I want you also to understand this. And we can we could preach a whole lesson on this. Hosea 1 to 3 and Jeremiah 3. Both of them kind of appeal to this kind of scenario. In Jeremiah 3, verse 1, God said, If a husband divorces his wife and she goes from him and belongs to another, will he return to her? Will not the land be completely polluted? So it enforces this ruling of Deuteronomy 24 verse 4. But you are a harlot with many lovers, yet you turn to me, declares the Lord. 
And God talks about there's not a place in all the land where you've not been ravaged, where you've not been defiled. Because of that, I withheld blessings from you to make you see your need of me. And you call to me, my Father, will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant till the end? Uh, What I'm trying to say is this. If you looked at the first 11 verses of Jeremiah 3... I think Deuteronomy 24 is appealed to and is showing us the magnitude of God's grace and that God took Israel back again after he as a husband had basically given her a certificate. Okay, so, so this law is used as an illustration of God's mercy to Israel and God's forgiveness. Now, that is a section that could engender many questions. As, 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 and Bob has already made a good point. Um, I, I just I don't know how to deal with all the answers to it and how this was practiced in that culture. And I, I think from Jesus' statement about the hardness of heart, it is a way to limit evil. Uh, but it is not necessarily God's original design, as Jesus said in uh, Genesis chapter 2, as he quoted Genesis 2. Look at verse 5. Now, verse 5 at first may seem disconnected when it says, When a man takes a new wife, he shall go out, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty he shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to the wife whom he has taken now first of all that doesn't seem to be in the right place because in Deuteronomy 20 in verses 5 through 7 we had seen except we had seen um, reasons to be uh, Exempt from military duty. And 24.5 seems to fit better with chapter 20 verses 5 through 7. But it also shows us something about the importance of marriage. Whatever we see in Deuteronomy 24, however we interpret all of these things, God did value marriage so much so that if a person is engaged in Deuteronomy 20 verse 7 and uh, there's a battle that comes up, he's exempt. For the first year of marriage, a man is exempt where he can stay home with his wife. And maybe the idea is they begin to have children and leave an heir. But, but the importance of marriage is emphasized in this overall context. Because it is a building block of society. It is a building block of society. As we say, I think I asked a couple of weeks ago how many people that are mass shooters in America have come from an intact, stable family. There may be some, but it's certainly not usually. Because when marriage and family break down, all of culture breaks down. And we must be diligent to preserve it.
to make it what God intended to be. Now, in Deuteronomy 24, verse 6, No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. Millstones were used to grind their bread, to grind their grain, and they would grind their grain and, and make their bread and make their food. And he says, if you take that in pledge, you are taking the thing they depended upon for a daily living. You're taking the thing that they needed in order to, to make it to the world. So you can't take that in pledge. Again, it's a statement of God's kindness of God's mercy for those who are poor and uh, who are in a situation where they owe money. In verse 7, if a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen, the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that man shall die, so you shall purge the evil from among you. In, in verse, if, if a man is caught kidnapping, He's called kidnapping. The English versions have a different word. Well, stealing. Stealing is actually the word for steal. It's actually the word for steal. It's translated kidnap by context. But when Jesus, when God said, you shall not steal, as one of the commandments, the eighth commandment, it is the same word that's used here. Some think that that statement about stealing in the context of the Ten Commandments is especially about the kind of stealing described here in Deuteronomy 24 verse 7 where a man steals his brother. He steals his brother either to make him a slave or sell him as a slave to another. Now, we talked about this when we were in the book of Exodus. Some people have used the Bible's statement about slavery or statements about slavery in order to criticize the morality of Scripture. And the Bible does not say all slavery is wrong. doesn't say that. Old Testament or the New Testament. But the type of slavery that people condemn in this country was always condemned like this passage. If you kidnap a person to make them a slave or to sell them, to kidnap one, to sell them to a foreign nation, to take them off to a strange environment was always considered wrong. And you remember, as Bob went over with you, I'm sure I did not get to listen to the tape, but back in Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16, when a slave escaped from another people and came to Israel, Israel was not to return him to his master. He was to let him live wherever he wanted in their midst. I don't know if there was any nation in the ancient world that had that kind of of statement that if a runaway slave came to you, you're not to return him, but you're to let him stay with you. And the penalty for violation of this in verse 7 is what? Death. The penalty is death and says, so you shall purge the evil from among you. 
And there are other places in the Bible that condemn uh, certain nations in the way they practiced slavery. Uh, and in a way similar to this, Amos 1 verse 6, Amos 1 verse 9 are a couple of examples. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Be careful against an infection of leprosy that you diligently observe and do according to all the Levitical priest shall teach you. As I have commanded you, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of the land of Egypt. It's sometimes difficult to determine why laws are placed where they are and um, to, to understand all of that. First of all, what happened to Miriam when Israel came out of Egypt? What happened to Miriam? What's, what happened in Numbers 12? Craig, you were in Numbers and uh, you remember Numbers 12. I'm putting you on the spot. Okay. They questioned Moses' authority. Now they made it look like a complaint about his wife. They complained about the, the woman here. But what it really was was about his authority. And because that's what God answers. And as a result, she is struck with leprosy. Now, that was a case where leprosy or skin disease happens as a result of sin. And may this be, by the fact that it, the way it's used in context, a warning against those type of sins that might lead to leprosy or skin diseases. Um, but uh, do all. But when the priests give you instruction, you're to do all that they tell you in verses eight and nine. Okay, let's look at some laws about loans and pledges. In verses 10 through 13, when you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you made the pledge shall bring the pledge out to you. If he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When, he sent, when the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him that you may sleep in its cloak. That, you may, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Now this passage, Deuteronomy 24, verses 10 through 13, also has a parallel in Exodus 22, verses 25 through 27. Exodus 22 verses 25 through 27. Now, uh, in, in this text, uh, the Bible uh, says, the Bible emphasizes that he, he apparently he owes money. That's the context. You've made him alone. Now what did you learn in Bob's Class 69 about making a loan. Make a loan, what were you not to do? What was that? Charge interest. 
not to charge interest. Yes, verses 19 and 20. Doesn't mean you couldn't make a loan. Doesn't mean you couldn't take a pledge as a guarantee the person would pay the loan. You, you could do that. You made loans. The person paid back the loan. They gave pledges that they would pay back the loan. But, but it says that when you take his pledge, you're to let him go in his house and get the pledge. You, know, you don't storm through his house and take whatever you want. Maybe there's some kind of agreement, some kind of deal. The specifics of all of that are not stated. But, but you stay outside your house. He goes in and gets it and uh, brings it to you. Now, if he is poor, the only thing he has to give as a pledge is the cloak he has. And Exodus 22 shows that. This is why verse 12 says, If he is poor, you shall not sleep with his pledge. You don't sleep with his pledge. Uh, and in Exodus 22, you find the same kind of emphasis. Uh, if you, he gives you your cloak as a pledge, you shall return it to him by the time the sun sets. And when the sun goes down, you bring it back. Now think about this. Every day he gives you his cloak as a pledge. And every night, every afternoon, as the sun is setting, you bring it back. What purpose does the cloak serve? Well, it, 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 keeps, it keeps the person who did it warm, but I'm saying this exchange. And this is just, yes, it does keep you warm, and that's part of the point. But, Mary. It's a reminder that he still owes a debt. Yes. It's also a gesture of mercy yeah. from, the, from the lender that yes. he's not Yes, okay. And so it reminds every day when you give that when you give that cloak up, it was a reminder of that. But every night you bring it back, yes, it, it was a statement of, of mercy and compassion. And it says, when you do this, it says verse 13, that he will bless you. He will he will bless you, he'll pray for you, he'll be thankful for you. It it brings goodwill between the lender and and the lendee, that he may sleep in his cloak and he will bless you. And more importantly, God sees it and it is righteous in his sight. Now in the passage in Exodus 22, the emphasis is a little different. The, the, the emphasis there is if you don't do it. If you don't do it and he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. Here, if you give it to him, he will bless you. He will be thankful for you. If you don't, he will cry out to God against you. And it will be a sin. But here, the emphasis is on the positive response. The man gives the cloak back to his friend. He sleeps in it. He keeps warm. And he blesses the one to whom he owes money. Look at the contrast between verse 15 and verse 13 when we read verse 15 in just a moment. In verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy 
whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that you may not cry out, he may not cry against you to the Lord and it becomes sin in you. The contrast I was drawing attention to in verse 13, you give him back his cloak, he blesses you, and it is righteousness. In verse, 14, verse 15, you don't pay him his wages, and he cries out against you, and it is sin. You have a worker, a hired servant. He is vulnerable. He is dependent upon the wages that he is paid. And it says, when he works for you, then before the sun sets. Notice how verse 13 and 15 are tied together by that phrase. The sun goes down or the sun sets in verse 13 and verse 15. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it. The good news in ancient Israel was that payday was every day. It's the good news. The bad news is you didn't get paid every day. But the good news is you got paid every day. So at the end of every day, you paid him for the work that he did. If you don't, it is a sin. And he will cry out against you. Leviticus 19.13 said the same thing. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. In that context, don't oppress him, don't rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until the morning. Okay? I've been rushing on. A rod? Respects, there are a lot of similarity. For example, in the parable of Matthew 20, and this is not the law you're asking about, we'll get to that. In the parable of Matthew 20, remember that those who worked got paid at the end of the day and perished. So in Matthew 20, 1 through 16, apparently still, the hired servant, the average hired servant, got paid every day. And in James 5, 4, there is a strong rebuke to those who would withhold daily wages from the poor. So some things are similar. Uh, now, you're asking, Robin, particularly about the, in the Old Testament, you give him this amount, you loan him this amount. Uh, and I think what you must be referring to is particularly Matthew chapter uh, 5. In when the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 38, um, or, or start verse 39. I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. That's Matthew 5 and verse 42. You see the same kind of thing in Luke chapter 6 in Jesus' record on the Sermon on the Mount. Give and it will be given to you. And they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Now, I, there are points where these laws are great and different. That's part of the point of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and Matthew 19, what we're saying. Uh, I think sometimes, I think though what the Old Testament is teaching here is the same kind of spirit that you see Jesus emphasize in Matthew 5. He's emphasizing the same kind of spirit. He's emphasizing that we be generous and we give. Remember Deuteronomy 15 saying that it's the seventh year and all debts are going to be forgiven. The seventh year is rolling around and your poor brother asks you money. He says, don't withhold it from him. It's because when the seventh year is coming close and I'm not going to give anything. So this is, in, this is a spirit this is a spirit of giving to help the other person. We get lost in this a long time. There are situations where I have given people money. There are situations that I have loaned people money with the intent that they should have had. I'm not going to take legal action. Maybe none of them will be paid. If they don't, for some of them, though, it was in their best interest to learn how you die. It's in their best interest to understand their responsibility. I don't know that that answers so much. I think Jesus, though, is so much, is summing up the spirit of all, is one that is giving and gracious and kind. I don't think he's so much for being alone as much as he is saying we're looking to be generous and not to be about it and see if I can do any better than that too. Um, let's look at verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons be put to death for their fathers. For their fathers, everyone shall be put to death for their own sin. Where does the Bible say this? He who sinneth shall die. The father shall not be put to death for the iniquity of the son. The son shall not be put to death for the iniquity of the father. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Where is that? Ezekiel 18. That's the, 
It's the only verse I can remember hearing a sermon on in Ezekiel when I was growing up. Uh, so that sticks with me. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. And, um, but, uh, do you remember who was the king of Judah? It said that he put to death some conspired against his father and killed his father, but that he did not put to death the sons because of this law in Deuteronomy 24, 16. Do you remember who that was? It was Amaziah in, in 2 Kings 14, 6 and 2 Chronicles 25, 4. Amaziah did not put to death. He put to death those who killed his father, but did not put to death their sons. The fact that statement is made in both Kings and Chronicles may show us that it was common at that time that they did that. That they put to death sons for their father's sins. And Amaziah breaks with that and does a good thing. Now... Let's read 17 through 22. And now let me ask you which theme, what themes are emphasized here. You shall not pervert the justice due to an orphan or widow, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in the field, and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, in order the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again, or bows again. Um, I always have trouble with that word. It shall be for uh, the orphan and the widow. When you, when, the, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Now, what themes are emphasized in 17 through 22? Bob? Okay, leave something for the less unfortunate. And who are specified as the less fortunate here? Several times. Alien, orphan, widow. I think that phrase is used four times. Verse 17, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21. And also there's another theme besides that. What else? What was it, Mike? Exactly. Deliverance from Egypt. Deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So he, he frames this by talking about you were slaves in Egypt in 24, 18, and 22. You were slaves and the Lord delivered you. And, and the point is, the Lord delivered you that act of mercy and kindness to a group of helpless captives shapes your treatment of other people. It shapes your treatment of them. Now, as, as Bob said in verses 19 through 21, there is emphasis on leaving things for the misfortune. Look at verses 19 through 21. I hope this is visible to everyone. But in verses 19 through 21, it says there are three steps that are pretty common to each of these verses. When you, when you leave a sheep, 
When you leave a grave, when you leave uh, an altar, when you do that, do not go back to death. When you do that, do not go back. That's set up each time. Each time that's specified. And then it says you leave them for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. So all of verses 19 through 21 follow that structure, follow that procedure. When this happens, when you do this, when you overlook this, you don't go back and get it. You leave it for the poor, the alien, the widow. When you read that, what Old Testament book should jump to your mind? Ruth. Ruth, that is how Ruth is making her living, gleaning. Now, in most cases, I don't suppose the gleaner got all that much. But Boaz makes sure that Ruth gets plenty. But again, God's treatment of Israel, God delivering them when they were slaves, is something that shapes their treatment to everyone else. The fact that we were slaves in sin... And we were delivered by forgiveness in Jesus. Needs to shape our treatment of everyone else. Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 3. If there's a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide the case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Justify is a word used basically meaning to pronounce innocent, condemn, to be found guilty. In verse 2, it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the, the judge shall make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. So the judges make a decision. The judges determine guilt and innocence. This saves a person from being beaten just as an act of vengeance. The case must be brought before the judges. The judge must be present. If you noticed in verse 2, when the judgment is rendered, when the, when the punishment is enforced, the judge must be present. He limits the number of stripes. You cannot beat him. You cannot use more than 40 stripes. That sounds like a lot. Whoa. I can remember counting up when my brother would get in trouble and I think he, the highest was 13. You know, he, I, I learned from my parents, if you stood there and took it, they just give you one or two. But if you, if you keep moving, they may, they may keep spanking you thinking they never got a good shot at you. So. <laughs> I think the statute of limitations is over there. Bob? Graffiti, and he was going to get caned and hit twice, I think, 
okay? And American media was having uh, an uproar. Oh, how horrible this is, he's gay. Why? Um, well, I, they don't have a whole lot of graffiti there. But, but 40 does seem strong. What did the Jews do in the first century to make sure they didn't go over? 39. Paul says 40 stripes save one in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 24. But, but, but I think there's a principle. Even though 40 does seem excessive, we don't know what they were hitting them with. Was it the proverbial wet noodle? You know, that it doesn't do a lot of damage. But the point is, in the law of Moses, even the criminal who was convicted of wrong had a certain amount of dignity, was not to be degraded. It endorses capital punishment. It endorses corporal punishment. But it also states you have to be careful about it lest your brother be degraded. Lest he be treated as less than a human being created in God's image. We must preserve that. And... and, and there's a place for both. I think the Old Testament shows strict punishment of crime and yet treating people with certain respect. But Lord willing, we will pick up in verse 4 on Wednesday.